Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. Well, I've entitled this morning's message, It's All About Him. Take your Bible and look at Romans chapter 11. And uh, let's, uh, let's pick it up in reading in, as we, this doxology of praise. <clears throat> I want to back it up even a little bit more than that. In Romans chapter 11, Paul is dealing with the whole issue here of uh, the Jew and the Gentile. And uh, what about the Jew? Has God's uh, program for them uh, been uh, defeated? Uh, God forbid. Uh, it has not, but uh, God has uh, set them aside for a time that he might graft into that living plant, that organism, the Gentiles, and he'll come back once again and deal with the Jew. And uh, in, in the wonder of this, the, the, uh, he... He, uh, in, in laying all of these things out, uh, he ends up with this grand doxology. And I remind you, that's the end of where all theological teaching ought to be. God does not give us truth that we might be able to, well, now I know something of God and what he's up to. And, and so it should never be to puff us up. It should always be to the praise of God. That's the end of theology. And that's where Paul ends his grand treatise of the gospel, particularly the question of the Jew and the Gentile, as he, as he breaks out in this grand doxology, which means glory to God, and sings that way. And so let's just pick it up um, at verse 28 of chapter 11 of Romans. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies. He's talking about the Jews. On your account, the Gentiles are in Rome. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God and have now received mercy, mercy of the gospel, he means, as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they may too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on all of them. He means the Jews and the Gentiles. And then he breaks in, he closes this whole section with this great doxology. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should owe him or repay him? For here's our focus text for this morning, verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Well, the title of the sermon is, It's All About Him. The Beatles 
last recorded song, I don't know if you realize it or not, some of you grew, grew up in that era and you're more acquainted with it than others, I realize that, but their last recorded song was entitled, I, Me, and Mine. Did you know that? Anybody know that here? Do you know that, Jerry? Well, such words reflect the first and the very last words of the unregenerate heart. I, me, mine. Sounds like a two-year-old fighting over his truck, doesn't it? That's mine. Mine. And what are adults? They're kids with big bodies and more expensive toys. I, me, and mine. The very last song of the Beatles. How about that? Well, we're born with a bent that thinks the world and everything in it exists for me, my pleasure, my comfort, and that the world revolves around me. That is my needs and my wants. People exist for me and for my benefit. It's a pagan, godless way of looking at the world. Such thinking really is secular humanism, which uh, we've heard a lot of it in the last 20 years, that description, secular humanism. But you should know that secular humanism, though that title is such, may be rather new, the idea of it is never new. It's ancient. It goes way, way, way back. Dr. Boyce suggests, and I think he's right, that the best statement of secular humanism in the Bible is found in the very words of Nebuchadnezzar there in Daniel chapter 4. You remember that account as we studied that some time ago? There was Nebuchadnezzar, and he's in his capital city of Babylon, and it was beautiful. I mean, the hanging gardens that he built there for his wife. Did you know he did that? One of the seven wonders of the ancient world. You see, she was uh, from the mountains, and Babylon was in the desert plain, the Euphrates River, and the Tigris that went right through. But she was from the hill country, and she loved uh, the trees, and the hills, and, the li- and all the, the birds, and everything that went with that. So he said, I know what I'll do. I'll build within this great capital of mine the great hanging gardens, and that'll help my wife from feeling homesick. It was a great love gift to her. And all the great buildings and all the splendor, God said it was the, the kingdom of kingdoms. It was the equivalent to gold when you think of the ancient world empires. It was filled with splendor. And Nebuchadnezzar was raised up by God to be a disciplining uh, 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 rod to the nation Israel. And he had, a, uh, he had developed as a pagan, godless, unregenerate, a, an inflated view of himself. And one evening there in Daniel chapter 4, he's up on his uh, terrace, up on his, in his palace, and he's looking out over this, the grandeur of this great city. And there he makes a statement that encapsulates probably the single greatest statement of secular humanism in all the Bible. As he surveys it, he says he takes all the glory for himself. Well, just I wasn't going to, but look at Daniel. I want to just remind you of this statement because it really, really said, you know where Daniel is, Daniel 4.31? Look at the words that he expresses here. 
Back it up, look at verse 28. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar 12 months later as the king was walking in the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. Verse 30, he said, here it is, Is not this the great Babylon that I, here it is, I have built, in other words, he's the source, as the royal residence, by my mighty power, he's the agent or means, and here's the goal, for the glory of my majesty. I think it's right. I think this is the strongest single statement in all the Bible of secular humanism. Look at verse 31. Notice God was not impressed. 31. While the words were still on his lips. How about that? It's like God said, uh, what was that? I, I heard that. I heard that. You know, God hears everything. It's worse than that, actually. He knows our thoughts even before we think them. That's the greatness of God. Uh, here, uh, the words are still on his lips. When a voice came from heaven, this is what is the decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You'll be driven away from people and, with, and will live with the wild animals. You'll eat grass like cattle. Seven times, means seven years, will pass by until you finally acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. And immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. And he was driven away from the people and ate grass like cattle for seven years. Well, seven years, he struck, God struck him with insanity. And he he, his hair grew long, his nails grew long. This king was struck from that point to that point as far as human, yeah, humanity is concerned. And the message there for us is as if God is saying through this that such thinking, that is secular humanism, that I am the source, the means, and the ends of all things, God is saying such thinking is insane. It's insanity. I realize that the world of fallen men do not honor God. But to take such things and to claim that you are the big maha, God hears it, he's not impressed, and will we'll deal with that. It's insanity. Well, we, when we become Christians, we are changed to see that everything is from, by, and to God for his glory. It's the ultimate uh, paradigm shift. That was a popular expression not too many years ago. It means a dramatic, drastic, 180 degrees turnabout in the way you're doing something or the way you're looking at something. And that's really what salvation is. Paul put it that way in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, all things are new. And there is a rapid change in your thinking and mind after having become a Christian. It is the ultimate paradigm shift. Uh, A.W. Tozer wrote in The Pursuit of God, he wrote, the moment we make up our minds that we're going on with this determination to exalt God over all, we step at that moment out of the world's parade. I like that. Out of the world's parade. 
we shall find ourselves out of adjustment to the ways of the world, increasingly so as we make progress in the holy war. We shall acquire a new viewpoint. A new and different psychology will be formed within us. A new power will begin to surprise us by its upsurgings and its outgoings. Our break with the world will be the direct outcome of our changed relationship to God. For the world of fallen men does not honor God. Millions call themselves by his name. They say, I'm a Christian. And it is true that millions do that. And they pay some token of respect to him. But Tozer goes on to say, but a simple test will show how little he is really honored among men. Let the average man be put to the proof on the question of who is above, and his true position will be exposed. Tozer says, let me be forced into making a choice between God and money, between God and men, between God and personal ambition. God in self, God in human love, God will take second place every time. Those other things will be exalted above. However, the man may protest the proof is in the choices he makes day after day throughout his life. Be thou exalted, Tozer says, is the language of the victorious spiritual experience. It is the little key to unlock the door to the great treasures of grace. Wow. Well, when we become Christians, we break with the parade of humanity, and we see that ultimately and finally everything is from God, through God, and to God, as Paul has told us. You might say three prepositions tell the whole story of everything. Paul, after telling of God's salvation, He breaks into the stoxology of praise, and so should we. Well, there are two areas where it is right for us to give God uh, all the glory. Two areas that we're going to look at here today, where he is worthy of our highest praise and of all glory. For it's not about us, we sing that song, it's all about him. Everything, from beginning to end, the smallest minutia to the greatest grandeur. It's all about him. The two areas are the creation, as you might imagine, and the second is the gospel, God's wonderful gospel. And that's more directly what Paul has been writing about in Romans. Well, first area, we ought to praise him for the creation of the heavens, the earth, and everything in them. For it is his doing. It was his plan. He was the agent to bring it all about. He sustains and holds it all together. And he will ultimately determine its end. And it's all for his glory. That is the creation that we enjoy. And don't we enjoy it on a beautiful Sunday morning like today? It's just perfect, we say. Is it not? It's glorious. We had too many windows here, you'd all be looking outside. I couldn't even hold your attention. Well, God is the source of the entire universe. A lot of people want to rob him of that glory. It's like uh, an inventor inventing some great uh, 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 invention and patenting it and attempting to patent. Somebody steals his patent. And the unsaved, rebellious heart of men and women want to rob it. 
And they do it by saying, oh, everything's all just always been, the eternality of matter. It's always been. Willfully ignorant in their rebellion of the God that they know, and they try and stamp him out. Or they'll say, well, it just came about. It just came about. And they park their brains in the parking lot, even brilliant people that are highly educated, and they'll say it just came about. You know, something never came from nothing, ever. And people that say, claim that everything came from nothing, it's a scary thing. They ought to stay inside. But they give them chairs in universities and departments, and they write books, and their bestsellers, Richard Dawkins and the like, and unbelievable. Well, God made everything. He is the source of the entire universe. Let God be true and every man a liar. Don't need to fudge it. God has said it, and that settles it. He's creator of everything. And more than that, he continues to sustain all things through his power, or they would come flying apart instantly. He holds it together. We can begin to understand some of the things that keep the universe in operation. You know, you think of uh, gravi- gravity. We can describe it. We have an idea how it uh, we, 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 we can measure it. We, we know the moon has a gravitational pull, the earth and other bodies. We have no idea other than God, where it came from, or how it really works. We really do not know. Electromagnetism and some of the other great forces, light, these things that God keeps and fashions and holds it all together. To God be the glory. He made it. He sustains it. It is all through his power, from him and through him. He is the source and the agent. Now, you should know, theologically, number one, that there was a time before creation when God the Father and Son and Holy Spirit were absolutely alone. Now, we often don't go back that far in our thinking, but it's true. The, the creation came about at a certain point. And my conviction is it wasn't that long ago. But before that time, there was, no, there was nothing. There was no universe, no stars, no space. The great preponderance of all that is in the universe is a vacuum. And you know it's very hostile. You say, isn't that nice? I'd like to go to Mars. Everything up there, it says, you're not wanted. You don't belong. This is very dangerous. Go home. You say, well, didn't astronauts go and walk on the moon? Yes, they did. They walked about in, you know what they were? Earth bubbles. They breathed air that came from Earth, and they ate food that was grown here. If you can call that stuff food, they ate. Drank, uh, what was it, Tang? Was that Tang? Everybody knows that made that famous, right? I got news for you. The moon doesn't produce anything. It's hostile. It's extreme. All they do is step out of that suit. Well, I just want to go in my birthday suit across the lunar surface. Instantly, that would have been the end of them. They were in earth bubbles. God has made the earth, and he's made it inhabitable, and he's put inhabitants on the earth. God is creator and sustainer of it. We discover what God has made. It's the glory of God to, to, to conceal. He's made all these things, and it's the glory of kings. doesn't mean regal kings, but those that give themselves to specialization in the, in the things of sciences and the things of the world that God has made to discover what God has done. 
You think of aeronautical engineering. We discovered the law of lift with the Wright brothers living within God's universe. The law of lift supersedes gravity, the shape of the wing, and air pressure lift. We came to discover that. Uh, you know, Franklin out with his kite. You know, a crazy thing to do. With, with <laughs> I'm not going to do that. We had some thunder boomers here last week. You know, go out, hold your kite. Don't do it. You know, I'm going to collect. Hey, electricity moves down the string. And all of that. Aren't you glad? Not too many years ago, we sat around in the dark at night. Now we flip the lights on. Man, what? Discovering what God has made and the laws of them. Michael Faraday, godly Christian man. Uh, and, and, and other, Galileo and some of these great scientists of yesteryear. It's, he is the great maker of it. But there was a time when none of it was, and God existed, and he was, you know what? He wasn't lonely. Some people say, well, God was lonely, so he made Adam. That's crazy. The one and the many. In fact, the Trinity, the triunity is the answer to that. Some of you have no idea, but some of you study philosophy. The answer, the one and the many, the unity and the harmony, the love and communication existed from eternity past among the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then in the mind of God that had always been there, God created uh, according to his plan. Uh, he created all. And, uh, and so on. So, blessed in his eternal existence, happy and needed nothing, God exercised, number two, his plan to create the universe as we now know it. And he did so by speaking the word. And I remind you, in my estimation, God didn't even need to speak the word. He didn't. He could have just thought the thought, and wham, it came into being. Wow. Wouldn't you like to borrow that kind of authority? I like to say that. Faithy's been so, she's been, she's our, she cuts our grass and does a great job. And that wouldn't it be great there? Just that grass be cut. Boom. Boy, look better than ever. Wouldn't you like that? How about you with kids? You know, the room cleaned up. Just think the thought, say the word. Man, sometimes we say it over and over, it doesn't get done, right? <laughs> God speaks the word and, whoa, comes into being. Look at the text. Genesis 1 1. Let's. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible begins with this. It begins with God. It begins with the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them. And then Psalm, look at Psalm 33, verse 6, tells the means. By, that's the agency, the word of the Lord were the heavens made and their starry host. That's the stars and everything. By the breath of his, his mouth. And then look, let's look at Hebrews 11.3. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. There's the word. So that what is seen was, made, was not made out of what was, was not made out of what was visible. There you go. It was uh, made from nothing. God spoke the word and it happened. From nothing. Now, I've often said, and you know I say this, that a closer picture of this very happening is the Lord Jesus and feeding the thousands there uh, the bread and the fishes. The little boy had the fishes and the bread, remember? It's amazing. You could get a lunch from a little boy. That's an amazing thing. No one's getting my peanut butter sandwich. Yeah, I can think of that. Do some fast talking and you're still not getting it, you know. 
But uh, he gave it, and the Lord took those and prayed and uh, fed the thousands. And they ate bread that was better than any of that good bread that comes out of Philadelphia. Isn't that good bread over there? Wow. Man. And, uh, or French bread. Some of you like the French bread, a little crispy on the outside, soft and moist. Better bread than they ever had. But you know, it came from, it didn't come from anywhere. It never came from any wheat that grew in any field. And he fed them fish. They ate fish that never swam in the Sea of Galilee. How about that? They didn't get it out. They weren't, they weren't sardines out of the cans, salted. Or, never swam anywhere. And, he fed. and we get a glimpse of the power of God in the presence of Christ in feeding and caring for people uh, there. And, and, and they even collected 12 uh, baskets full of leftovers. And <laughs> well, you know, the people loved it. They thought this is the ultimate welfare program. We're going to follow him around, talk about free lunch. Someone said, no free lunch. There's a free lunch, you know. And we get an idea how God created. Well, God created the universe that way. We didn't even need to. From nothing. Uh, ex nihilo is, uh, uh, is, the, is the Latin uh, expression. From nothing, God made all that is. He did not uh, need any help to do this. Sometimes we do some projects and we need help, don't we? Rob's been helpful for... With, with my HVAC system, it comes over and tweaks it here and there and water leaks. and he fi- you need, I need help. I can't do it. He's a genius with it. And we need help, don't we? God didn't need any help. None. None. To make the heavens and the earth. None. And come to think of it, uh, uh, and, and, and so on, and he didn't even need any material to make it. Amazing. Boy, we go to build a shed in the backyard. We go down to Home Depot and check out price of two-by-fours and, and some T-111 or something and shingles and all that and figure out what it's going to cost, right? We're supposed to count the cost before we start building a tower unless you can't build it and finish it and everyone laughs at you. <laughs> Look at that. He couldn't finish. What a joke. What a loser, you know? God didn't need any materials. Wow. Well... God made it all. He's the source and the agent. But more than that, B, God created all of the creation for his glory. It's to him. It's from, through, and to him. He's the goal of that, of creation. Number one, often we tend to think that it was made for us. And there is a sense. There is a sense where all the creation leads up to the to the final sixth day when God made Adam and gave him Eve and placed them in the center of paradise on earth called the garden. There is a sense where that's true, that God did that for Adam, but uh, that's not the reason it was all done. Take a step back and look at the bigger picture. All of it, all of it from beginning to end was done for the glory of God that we might give him honor and praise, that we might learn things about him that we would otherwise not learn. It's for his glory. Now, it's true that we can enjoy life and appreciate the beauty of the universe, and I certainly do. I do. I look at it. I love the seasonal changes. I don't know what season you like the best, uh, but spring is a beautiful time. I'm 
increasingly uh, loving it. Growing up in Buffalo, it rained every day. We had snow and black snow around forever. Spring, I never really liked it. Uh, summer was so short. We loved that. And then when I took up skiing in winter, that changed winter for me. We enjoyed finally going outdoors other than to deliver the newspapers. I hated that. And, 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 but the a spring is so beautiful. Faith loves, that's her favorite, and I'm beginning to love that. And so I always love summer, you know. But the beauty of the trees and the flowers and the birds and the varieties and the kinds, magnificent. Shout glory to God. Do they not? They do. Shout glory to God. Wow. It's, but in realizing that, the creation is not ultimately and finally about us. It's not. It's not about you. It's not about me. Although God takes care of us in the midst of it. Praise the Lord for that. But number two, the creation, as I said, is for God's glory. It teaches us wonderful things about him. Things that, uh, that hold all men and women accountable. All men and women know there is a God, that he exists. And because of that knowledge, that is gleaned through natural revelation, through the creation. All men and women are held accountable and under judgment by God. That's Romans 1. Well, let's look at uh, Psalm 119, 1, 2, and 3. As we look at that, uh, David uh, reminds us of... Uh, did we get that down, Psalm 19? 1, 2, and 3? Yeah, Psalm 19. It's coming? Okay, look, look at Psalm 19. The heavens declare, the, the Hebrew word is the idea of shouts. The heavens shout glory to God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard, and their voice goes out into all the earth, their words unto the end of the age. It's universal in tongue. Some of you have gone to the United Nations, and it's a testimony that we still live in a post-Babylon day because people sit around with headphones on listening to the variety of languages that are around the world that God has designed to keep uh, depraved, sinful, rebellious people separate lest uh, they compound their rebellion and destroy the earth. This language, you don't need a headset. Because you look at creation, you look at the beauty of a flower, you smell the red roses, you feel the soft, warm breezes, you go down to the ocean and you smell the salt air coming in and it and in the midst of seagulls going, and that shouts and declares glory to God. The moon the other night, a few days it was glorious in all of its just shouts. You don't need to say, oh, I wasn't very good in foreign language. Don't need it. It just declares the glory and the wonder of God, that he's really there. He's a God of order and design, a, a God who is almighty and powerful. And, uh, and, and we, we see it, and we give glory to God for it. The reason or purpose for which all things were formed is to promote God's honor and glory. So we should, so he would have honor and praise and the praise that is due him. You know, you owe him this, and I do too, all day long. Not just Sunday morning, owe him. Some of you 
uh, still owe on your homes. You bought a home and you're making mortgage payments on it. You owe some financial institution uh, once a month. They want to hear from you. <laughs> right? You owe them. You owe them. You owe Some of you buy cars on time. You owe the bank or they'll come and tow it away, right? You owe. Well, in a different way and a far more important, you and I owe God honor and glory and praise for all things, particularly, first of all, for his creation, for it is his. It is all his, and we ought to honor him. It's the entire universe is from, through, and to God. Come to think in this biblical way. Now, Bob, I, I didn't mention to you, but you had sent me, and I filed it, and I'm going to read it now, uh, this story about laminin. Did you know uh, that uh, the glue, there's a glue that literally holds your bodies together? There was a doctor, a medical doctor friend uh, was watching uh, Louis Giglio one time while he was preaching, and the doctor uh, said uh, uh, he was blown away uh, as he listened to uh, Louis talk about the creation um, let, me, let me just uh, read the excerpt of this. He, Louis, was talking about how inconceivably big our God is, how he spoke the universe into being, how he breathes the stars out of his mouth that are huge, raging balls of fire, etc., etc. Then he went on to speak on how this star-breathing, universe-creating God also knit our human bodies together with amazing detail and wonder. At this point, I'm loving it, this medical doctor said. Fascinating from the medical standpoint. I was remembering how I was constantly amazed during medical school as I learned more and more about God's handiwork. I remember so many times thinking, how can anyone deny that, that a creator did all of this? And then he writes, Louis went on to talk about how we can trust that the God who created all of this also has the power to hold it all together. When things seem to be falling apart, how our loving creator is also our sustainer. And then I lost my breath. It, it wasn't because I was running on my treadmill either. It was because he started talking about laminin. I knew about laminin and how it, uh, and here is how uh, uh, the encyclopedia describes them. Laminins are a family of proteins that are, in, that are an integral part of the structural scaffolding of uh, basement membranes in almost every tissue. You see, laminins are what hold us together, literally. They are the cell adhesion molecules. They are what holds one cell of our body to the next cell. Without them, we would literally fall apart. And I knew all this already, but what I didn't know is what laminin looked like. But now I do, and I have thought about it a thousand times since. Here is what the structure of laminin looks like, and this is not a Christian portrayal of it. If you look up laminin in any scientific medical piece of literature, this is what you'll see. I'll hold it up. It's actually, it's in the form and shape, this laminin of a cross. Isn't that amazing? Literally, it's the glue that holds all of your millions upon millions of cells together. 
Now, tell me that our God is not the coolest. Actually, coolest is not exactly the word that came to my mind, he writes. Amazing. The glue that holds us together, all of us, is in the shape of a cross. Immediately, Colossians 1, 15 to 17 comes to mind. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now call me crazy, he goes on to write. I just think this is very, very, very cool. Thousands of years before the world knew anything about laminin, Paul penned these words. And now we see that from a very literal standpoint, we are held together one cell to another by the cross. These laminin structures. You would never in a quadrillion years convince me that is anything other than the mark of the Creator who knew exactly what laminin glue would look like long before Adam even breathed his first breath. Faith is not knowing what the future holds, it's knowing who holds the future. I want you to know and to understand that you are being held together by the cross of Jesus Christ, his love, his forgiveness, and his marvelous power. Isn't that amazing? Laminate. Maybe you never heard of it. Thank you, Bob, for sending me that article. I filed that away and remember that this week as we were thinking, about, well, all glory to God. He is, the, he is the source, the agent, and the ends of creation. But the second area where, where it is right for us to give God all the glory, for he alone is worthy, is in the area of, of his gospel. So we ought to second praise him for his gospel, for the whole plan is for his glory. Paul's been writing about the gospel in this, uh, the epistle to the Romans, uh, it is the gospel of salvation by grace and by grace alone. And he tells that the way of salvation is also from and through and to him. And that is specifically what he's speaking about here in our text in 1136. Well, A, it is from him in that God has planned all of it. And no one else could ever have done it. He planned it. It's his eternal plan and it's his from the uh, drafting board uh, at the very beginning. And Paul quotes Isaiah 40 uh, here in Romans eleven thirty four and 35. Let's read 11, 34, and 35, where he's quoting Isaiah 40. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Rhetorical questions. Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? It's a reminder that uh, nobody helped God. Nobody counseled him. It's his entirely. He is the source of it all. This wonderful gospel that magnifies the wisdom of God even greater than the, the creation. A, number one, for the gospel meets the requirements of God's unyielding justice. Did you know that God's justice is unyielding? We live in a day where we've lost that in many places in our courts. A lot of times judges do not mete out justice. 
that's either in error or it's, it's too merciful uh, or a, a compassionate or way off base. But God's justice is unyielding. What is right is right and will always be right. What is wrong is wrong will always be wrong. And the wrongs will be dealt with fairly. Listen, we never cry out for God to be fair with us because then we're asking for justice. We don't do that. We deserve uh, hell forever to be taken out exactly now, not to live another second. We pray for God's grace, for his mercy, his kindness. But uh, the gospel, you see, uh, meets the requirement of God's unyielding justice and yet provides justification for lost sinful men and women. It is only the gospel. It was a dilemma that only God could solve. But the text tells us he is both just, he's just, and he's justifier. He justifies through his grace. It's a magnification of the wisdom of God. It's glorious. We think that Einstein was the most brilliant one who maybe have lived in the last hundred plus years, right? Albert Einstein, theory of relativity, equals mc squared, and brilliant. And somebody said his brain has been pickled. I don't know if that's true. I'm sure it's not a pleasing sight if it's sitting in some jar somewhere in formaldehyde. Oh, my word, you know. God is the great genius that alone could figure out this dilemma. How to receive sinful men and women, rebellious people like us that deserve instantly the lake of fire, destruction, and death forever. How to save such people without offending his holiness, his justice, his righteousness. It was a dilemma of a problem Talk about a real brain teaser that only God alone could solve. To the praise of his glory. And it magnifies his wisdom, greater than, even greater than what we see displayed in the creation. It's the gospel of God. It's his gospel. Only God could have planned the salvation that is apart from human merit. Only God could do that. And Romans tells us how some... Uh, both Jews and Gentiles will be saved. It's amazing. It's wonderful. It's glorious. And even the timing of salvation is ordained of God. Paul wrote in Galatians 4.4, and it reminds us that in the, when the, the time had fully come, or in the fullness of time, God sent his son born of a woman, born under law. A wonderful reminder that uh, the whole thing from beginning to end, there was not one shadow of happenstance, but more precise than the most expensive Swiss watch, God's timetable is exactly perfect. That you and I should live at this period of time is no accident. In the details of our lives, the way you look, your gifts and abilities, all of that, how you came to saving faith if you're saved. God orchestrated all of that. The sending of his son at the exact moment, in the nick of time, the Roman world with the Pax Aromia, the peace that existed for that period of time around the Mediterranean. 
to receive as a cradle the gospel and, and from there go throughout the whole world was of God's orchestration was perfect. That a little virgin Mary would conceive and, and bear the Christ child, the seed of the woman, perfect right to the very moment. And as you read the Gospels, and we're going to move into a study of the life of Christ and probably more exactly the Gospel of Luke, we're going to notice the all things were the Lord, his baptism by John, the time, the day, exactly right. The, the calling out of, of disciples right on this divine timetable of God. The movement of the Lord around the crowds and the masses and, and the discipleship training and, and the time alone and the healings and all of that. And then as he makes his way to Jerusalem, he's cognizant of the timetable and and rides into uh, Jerusalem on the day of Palm Sunday and, and weeping and saying, if you had only known this day, right according to God's chronology, right to the precise moment. It was the end of the 69th week of uh, Daniel 9. I mean, from beginning to end, it's God's marvelous peace, this thing of salvation. To God alone be the glory. And then as he he endures the suffering and the shame, that the, the beating his visage beyond recognition, plucking out his beard and scourging him with a whip and nailing him to the cross. I mean, when you, you read it through, you take a step back, you, you, you say to yourself, who's in charge here? I mean, he's uh, the lamb before his shears, but it seems like he's completely in control of all that's going on. It's, uh, it's amazing, but it's not when you think about it, because it really is true. He laid down his life. Nobody took it right at the exact moment. He gave up his spirit at the exact moment. They were amazed. In six hours, he had died. They were like, wow, how did that happen? That was fast, the exact moment. And the resurrection on the exact day. You have the sign of Jonah, he said, three days and three nights. The sign of Jonah, the resurrection he had been teaching. There was no accident. It was perfect. Perfect. And then his appearances, and then finally his ascension, seated at the right hand, and the promise of his coming. We pray with John, even so, come close. One day will be like no other day. He will come for his bride, the church. The precision and the timing of God in his gospel, it's his. And then the calling out of a people. He doesn't call all people, but there is an efficacious call that when he calls that boy or girl, that man or woman, whether young or old, they respond, they're regenerate. They believe the gospel, and they exude with repentance. It's God's building his church for his glory. From beginning to end, it's his. It's all his. It's amazing. He is the source. Uh, B, it, it, he is the means. It is through him alone that salvation is accomplished. Hear him on the cross saying, Tetelestai, it is finished. It's the triumphal cry of the general when the battle is finally victorious. And the enemy is routed and death has been defeated. And we sing, Jesus did it all. All to him I owe. He paid the price, and we are saved. 
He is, it is through him. Salvation, I'm reminded, is both good news and bad news. It is. The bad news is your part. You weren't a good little guy and God ought to just let you in or a good little girl. And no, you're born in sin and under judgment and death. And God saved you if he did through his mercy and through his grace. The bad news is what we did. That's the sin. The good news is what he did. He did it all. You did nothing, nothing to earn salvation. Don't ever think in your twisted thinking that you did. You didn't. You didn't. Nor did I. See, it is to him. He is the ends of it all. That is, the chief purpose of our salvation is to the glory of God. Now, we benefit, don't we? We benefit from it. I'll be the first to say that. Oh, the life of a Christian man that loves the Lord and walks with him and grows in faith and to understand the big questions of life and to be a blessing and to know that the best is yet to come and the death is not the great final curtain call. It's just the beginning, really. It's just the beginning. And heaven is our home. I mean, we, do we not benefit from it? We say, well, look at this. Look at the result. I mean, it's great. He that has the Son has life and has it more abundantly. John 10, 10. We, we say, man, that's really true. It, we, we do. There is a result that we get and the benefit we get and heaven's our home and won't it be great? No tears, no more death, no more funerals, no more obituaries in the paper, no more suffering, no more, no more weeping. Where was I? I was out, I, I was out the other day, uh, and I got a hamburger, <clears throat> and uh, I was sitting there waiting for my burger to get done, and there behind me was the unmistakable weeping of a lady. I just, I saw her family around her, and I told Faith, just, it was that, that just, she broke out in a, a, that, that minor key weeping, and I, it, I, I, tur- I turned around and looked because it was such, it just ripped your heart. And I didn't know what was going on. They were, they were comforting. It looked like your husband was giving her comfort. And then they grabbed their bag and, and left the store. And I thought, that's the sound. Somebody died. It's that unmistakable brokenheartedness that death happens. And we as a community saw that this week, didn't we? We had three. We had that wonderful teacher in Harrisburg coming from a, an awards program at Hershey Country Club for one of the great teachers. And while she's driving home from it, just, what, 52 or 3, this wonderful teacher was killed. Someone crossed the line and hit her. And she was such a blessing to so many students over at the Harrisburg High School. And then the two kids from Mechanicsburg that had gone one year of college at Penn State, students of promise, I mean, uh, incredible. And, and they were in a truck without seat belts, and the driver, for whatever reason, he lived and was released, uh, hit a tree. And the, the two, the, the guy and the girl, and I, I could just sense it in the whole area here. There was, there was grief, and I thought, well, maybe this woman at that hand. Maybe that was a near relation to somebody. 
just seemed like it. They're, the boys around, with, they, they're, they had a shirt on and a tie, and I said, they don't look like they belong in a tie. You can sort of, and it looked like they may have come from something, you know. Heaven, won't that be great? No more tears, no more mourning, no more obituaries. And we do benefit from it. We do. But you know this. No. Even though heaven will be our home forever, this is not the main reason for salvation. It's not about you. Ultimately and finally, it's not about me. Here it is. Our happiness is not God's main concern. A lot of people think that God is like Santa Claus in the sky. He exists to make me happy. And if he doesn't make me happy, I'm going to pout and wander away. People do that. They, you know, I got news for you. It's not about your happiness. God has written this great story and it's coming about exactly on time. It's about him. It's not about you. And God is doing things in our life to bring about his glory, his ultimate purpose is for his glory, not about you, not about me. Well, why are some chosen to be saved while others are not? I mean, some of you are troubled by that. You say, well, why doesn't the grace of God just save everybody? Well, he certainly could. And the grace of God, uh, it's the purpose of God and the calling of God. Aren't you glad for the call of God? If God didn't call you, you would never be saved, nor would I. You weren't born neutral. You were born dead in your trespasses and sin. If God didn't quicken your heart, you'd be lost. And God certainly could have saved all, and the blood of Christ certainly could have covered all that ever sinned. We say, well, what's the deal here? Well, here it is. It's to the glory of God. Uh, God is glorified in the elect because it magnifies, as God elects some and calls some and saves some, it magnifies his love. You'd never see his love in creation. You look at the Big Dipper until 3 a.m. You never, never see the love of God. There it is. I see it. God loves me. No. You see his power, his majesty. He's awesome. But you never see his love, his grace, and his mercy, and these wonderful things, the goodness of God. Never. But when God saves some through his calling and election... It magnifies that God is a God of love. You see? You say, well, then what about the lost? God is glorified in the lost. The Bible teaches that. Men and women that, that see God in creation, that reject him, that, are, that uh, die in their sin and face forever in the lake of fire and lost. So how is that? Well, it magnifies God is a God of righteousness, his justice, his wrath, his holiness. It uh, clearly displays that, and so it brings glory to him. Well, therefore, as uh, you think about the, such things, you should join Paul and sing the doxology, the praise of the glory of God for all things in the creation all things and salvation, for it's really all about him. Charles Spurgeon, that pastor of another uh, uh, different day, uh, wrote this. To him, he wrote, uh, um, To whom be glory forever. 
This should be the single desire of the Christian. He may desire to see his family well brought up, but only that to God may be glory forever. That Christian, he may wish for prosperity in his business, but only so far as it may help him to promote this, to whom be glory forever. He may desire to obtain more and more, uh, more gifts and more graces, but it should only be to him be glory forever and ever. At my work behind the counter or in the exchange, let me be looking out to see how I may glorify him. If I be walking in the fields, let my desire be that the trees may clap their hands in his praise. Never be silent when there are opportunities, and you shall never be silent for want of opportunities. At night, fall asleep, still praising your God. As you close your eyes, let your last thought be how sweet to rest upon the Savior's bosom. In afflictions, praise him. Out of the fires, let your song go up. On the sickbed, extol him. Dying, let him have your sweetest notes. Let your shouts of victory in the combat with that last great enemy be all for him. And then when you have burst the bondage of mortality and come into the freedom of the immortal spirit, then in a nobler, sweeter song, you shall sing unto his praise. Be this then your constant thought to him, to him, to him be glory forever and ever. Well, what is the chief end of man? Well, the answer comes from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, does it not? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Well, what are some lessons for our life and will be done? Number one, you exist, you and I exist for one main purpose. That's it. It is to glorify God. And we ought to give ourselves to it in every and any way we can. You exist not for the next meal. Some teenage guys think that. Or the next athletic game. Or the next this or that. No. You exist for God's glory. Live to the glory of God. Number two, your life is not about you. It's not about you. It's about Him. It's not I, me, and mine. It's all about Him. Think biblically about such things. Your children, your life, your gifts, your talent, your resources, your opportunity, your next breath, all of it is about Him. The Bible teaches this from cover to cover. It's about Him. Number three, everything you have is a gift from God. Even your personality is a gift from God. Your talents are a gift from God. Where do you think you got it from? God sets all the boundaries. He has given all of these things. Use them for his glory. And he'll be honored through that. Use it all for him. Number four, abandon any thought that you had a part in your salvation. Abandon it. Give it up. You did not. For in his grace he visited you if you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and been saved from the penalty of your sin. 
And number five and last, if you're here this morning and you've never trusted the Savior, today's a great day to do that. Call upon the name of the Lord. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. Deserve death and hell and destruction. Thank you for the love gift of your Savior. I receive him. Be merciful unto me, a sinner. And God will save you. Don't let the day pass. Know this. Some of you, most of you know the Lord. That you'll be able to pass this on to others and urge him to the Savior. Well, it's not about you. The Beatles didn't quite have it right, did they? They didn't have a whole bunch of stuff right. I remember throwing up the time I saw the headline, We are more famous than God. Oh, my. Oh, please. Is there lightning going to hit? It wasn't right. On the magical mystery tour. I, me, and mine. No, no, no. It's not about us. It's all about him. Thank you.